Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret history and behind-the-scenes facts behind your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. We are your cavemen of culture, your troglodytes of trivia, your loincloth-wearing leaders of little-known entertainment stories. My <laughs> name's Jordan Runtog. And I'm Alex Seigel. And today, we are talking about the Flintstones. Perhaps you've heard of them? They are a modern <laughs> Stone Age family. Heard of from them. the town of Benrock, it says here. Yeah. Uh, in addition to being our evolutionary ancestors, they're also the originators or progenators, whatever the right word is, of the animated sitcom. Before you had the Griffins in Quahog or the Simpsons in Springfield, you had the Flintstones in Bedrock. Usually the Simpsons did it first, but in this case, it was the Flintstones. Truly one of the most cherished, not to mention enduring animation properties of all time. Spawning over 10 spinoff series, 12 television specials, Five made-for-TV films, two live-action movies, two theme parks, a live stage show, and some vitamins and cereal, which we'll talk about. Heigl, what are your thoughts on this show? None. <laughs> just, just an absence of thought. I don't know. Just I, happy to be here. Yeah, just, just happy to be spending basking in in the warm glow of your smile. Um, just, just here, so I don't get fined. <laughs> Both teams played hard, my man. Good night. God bless. Wasn't that the that's the Rashid Wallace thing? I'm not. I forget who said I'm just here so I don't get fined. But Rashid Wallace's famous thing was saying both teams played hard every time he was asked a question. Both teams played hard, my man. God bless and good night. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't. It's I Marshawn Lynch, by the way. Marshawn Lynch said, "I'm just here yeah. so I don't get fined." Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know, dude. I I think my like biggest memories of this are just like watching it on TV at like relatives houses like when there was just like nothing else on I don't have any yeah, that's the appropriate level yeah, of experience to have with I, I don't have any particular nostalgia for it I think the, the most fondness I have about it is um the movie from the because that came yeah. out when we were kind of in the target zone for that 
Um, yeah, exactly. But yeah, I I don't know what you you like your fan your guy you. Uh, I, I see uh, you, know, you being more of a Jetsons guy. I liked them both. Well, I, I mean, the Flintstones was the original, so yeah. I I tended to favor them. I mean, for all my love of kitsch and mid-century Americana, you know, I, I'm predisposed to enjoy this. But yeah, I never went. It's never anything I went out of my way to watch. I mean, to me, it's up there with like the Rudolph Christmas special. Like it's the time of the year and you flick through the channels and it's on. You sit and watch a little bit of it. The thing that kind of took me aback when I was researching this episode was how clever a show it is, mm. especially considering that it pioneered the animated sitcom to begin with so there really was no precedent but all the stupid jokes about you know the cavemen puns and all the yeah. different ways that they would have modern amenities done in cavemen times it was even the stupid car that he just drives with his feet like stuff like that it's it is that stuff is legitimately funny to me and also all the guests they'd have which we talk about i mean they got tony curtis on and like Anne margaret and a lot of great rock puns <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so that's fun to me. And also, as we'll talk about, some of the stuff that they tackled is like way more adult than I remember. Stuff that totally goes over kids' heads, which is always impressive to me. So yeah, there's there's more here. I mean, the story behind it is really cool, which I'm really happy to talk about. But the actual episode plots are a lot crazier than I remember them being. It's either Family Guy or The Simpsons where the Ofish Patriarch has like poured cement into a pelican to like yeah. for, for a home improvement project and the pelican falls over and dies and he's like come on you gotta say like uh it's a living or almost quitting time right come on buddy wait it's just yeah. a dead bird yeah it's the simpsons well with that in our eyes and ears <laughs> well we'll talk about all the famous firsts on the show including like a weirdly sexual one. Some of the surprisingly dark plot lines and nod kid-friendly jokes that crop up in the series. The time the voice of Barney was near death and recorded his parts from a body cast in a hospital bed. The surprising way that Beethoven inspired the theme tune. And the controversies that drew the ire of Jackie Gleason and Hulk Hogan. <laughs> Without further ado, here's everything you didn't know about the Flintstones. <laughs> You're nobody till Hulk Hogan sues you. <laughs> the Flintstone series began in 1960 and became the crown jewel of the Hanna-Barbera Animation Studios. And now most people have at least a passing familiarity with Hanna-Barbera. They are famous for TV mainstays like Scooby-Doo, The Smurfs, The Jetsons, Yogi Bear, Johnny Quest. The studio was founded by William Hanna and Joseph Barbera, who'd first achieved success working at MGM on the Tom and Jerry cartoons before striking out on their own. But their first few shows were not especially well-received. You had stuff like Huckleberry Hound and Quick Draw McGraw. Although these shows were marginally successful, they didn't have the same widespread appeal as Tom and Jerry, which entertained both children and adults. So by the late 50s, they wanted to recapture the grown-up demo with an animated sitcom. And as I said at the top of the episode, this was a pretty radical idea, but they hit a wall when it came to actually coming up with the premise of the show and specifically how the characters should dress. You know, once you have the look of the characters down, then you could start to conceptualize the plot and what kind of show this was going to be. And they batted around all these different ideas. One was about a hillbilly family. One was about a pilgrim family. One was about a Native American family, which would have 
most certainly been ghastly <laughs> yeah, on the level of Song of the South. And a Roman family, which they ultimately did do in 1972 with a short-lived series called The Roman Holidays, which only ran 13 episodes. You have a favorite part of this uh, short-lived series. <laughs> Just the fact that the apartment building that they lived at was called the Venus de Milo Arms. That's good. I don't think that lands. And in modern days, our apartment buildings are still called the blank arms. I feel like that's a holdover from a different time. But just, yeah, Venus de Mayo, famously armless statue. Uh, that's funny. That's funny. Good yeah, stuff. Good. But back in the late 50s, Hannah and Barbera couldn't agree on a premise for this new animated sitcom. And they were really getting frustrated with each other. And finally, in a possibly apocryphal story... William Hanna supposedly just blurts out, let's do it in a caveman setting. They won't have to wear any clothes. They'll just wear animal skins. <laughs> and that's when they cracked the idea. They drew up some preliminary sketches. And according to Joseph Barbera, everything fell perfectly into its place. And it proved fairly easy to take contemporary life and throw it back into the Stone Age with some design flourishes and rock puns. Lots of rock puns, as you mentioned. The working title of the show was The Flagstones, which they changed to avoid confusion with the characters in the comic strip High and Lois. And they also toyed with The Gladstones, meh, hmm. uh, which, yeah, not as good, before landing on the vastly superior Flintstones. It's a double rock pun. Flint, stone, hmm. it's great. It's perfect. And I know I keep harping on this, but the idea of an animated sitcom may seem commonplace today. But in the late 50s, this was fairly radical. And for the longest time, none of the networks wanted to go near the Flintstones. Joseph Barbera talks about going to New York City to pitch the show with this elaborate 90-minute presentation where he acted out all the voices and showed off all these visuals. No one would touch it. He lived in a hotel for eight weeks desperately trying to close a deal he'd be doing this 90 minute presentation upwards of five times a day and just everyone passed finally on his last day in the city he presented to abc and that network decided to take a chance on the show and in 1959 the flintstones came to life for the very first time with a 90 second pilot that hanna barbera filmed to show to potential advertisers and it was less of a finished product and more of a demo reel there are grease pen marks in the margin and stuff but still it's historic the flintstones live and this demo reel was believed to be lost for decades until 1993 when the cartoon network went on the hunt and unearthed it in a new york storage warehouse which i I would love to know that backstory. The head of Cartoon Network was just glowing when he talked about it to Entertainment Weekly, saying it was this mythological sort of thing animators had heard of, but nobody had ever seen. So he sent out teams of researchers to look all over for it, and it was like the search for the Holy Grail, but they ultimately found it. And in this demo reel got its first TV airing in May of 1994, and you can currently see it on YouTube. Have you? Have you watched it? Is it good? Yeah, it's cute. It's like, yeah very early it's rough i just i'm always interested especially in with animation stuff seeing like demo stuff just to kind of see what it looks like behind the scenes because animation to me is just like sorcery and it's hard for me to even see that it actually came from you know human hands so it's cool to see the early ones with the sketch marks and stuff just to kind of yeah see how they do it i like that so hannah and barbara hired both live action and traditional animation writers to script the show uh, writing plot lines that focused on everyday family problems often resolved in a tidy 23 minutes, just like most sitcoms. The Flintstones was one of the first animated shows to feature a laugh track, which was something usually only seen in traditional sitcoms. The influences on the show were 
also more varied than most people would expect. The loincloth look of the show drew from the 1955 Tex Avery short, The First Bad Man, which was a cowboy story in a prehistoric setting. And the writers also borrowed a lot from Laurel and Hardy, especially where the plot lines were concerned. At least six episodes are nearly identical to classic Laurel and Hardy films. The Avery thing is interesting to me because there's a guy named Ed Benedict who would later create Yogi Bear and do like consultant work when Johnny Quest launched in the mid-90s because he was like 100 years old. He did uncredited work on, um, on that Tex Avery short. I just love how so much of animation history is... Um, like littered with laziness <laughs> they're just like we had well, so time consuming well, and we had 17 of these to churn out like just reuse the damn frames <laughs> uh, and they do it's like all the disney stuff where there's like isn't at the end of beauty and the beast is actually like the same frames yep. of the couple dancing from sleeping beauty i think yeah, Cinderella, one or the other. I think Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, and what was the other one when we that we just did with um one of the Don Rose Bl- Rabbit? The, yeah, the no, the Don Bluth one in um Oh, it's Anadu. Yeah, it has reused frames from something that he did. Anyway, the most obvious connection for the Flintstones, however, is the Honeymooners. Jackie Gleason's groundbreaking 50s sitcom about spousal abuse and the trials <laughs> and travails of being a working class bus driver in uh Bushwick, Brooklyn. They're in Bushwick, right? You know what? I don't know. I know they're in Brooklyn because I think it's on like the Welcome to Brooklyn sign. I believe Honeymooners and Harry f***ing Nilsson. I knew Harry Nilsson. Wait, the Honeymooners house. You're right. It's a tourist attraction. You're right. It's in Bushwick. Wow. That is wild. Anyway, you and I both drew the exact same conclusion, which was that Flintstones was a conscious, obvious satire of Honeymooners because the character archetypes are exactly the same. Um, you have the gruff patriarch and his no-nonsense wife, the dopey friend, uh, Art Carney from Honeymooners, and his slightly ditzy wife with the goofy high voice, and also the fact that Fred Flintstone looks very much like <laughs> Ralph Cramden, uh, the character played by Jackie Gleason. Um, and even the guy that they got to voice Fred, Alan Reed, had done voiceovers for Jackie Gleason. And yeah, man, it seems so blatant that it's like, I'm, I literally I thought, just now learned that, like, to, to, like when I read this. I thought they were associated it with it. Yeah, like, yeah. I thought the Honeymooners were, like, on board with this, and they, they gave them kickbacks or something. <laughs> I had no idea that that's not the case. Not, very much not the case. The Hanna-Barbera partnership is still split over it, or I guess they were when they were alive. William Hanna admitted that the Honeymooners was the most popular show in the air, and for my bill, the funniest. That influenced greatly what we did on the Flintstones as a kind of basis for the concept. Joseph Hanna, however, denies that, saying, I don't remember mentioning the Honeymooners when I sold the show, but if people want to compare the Flintstones to the Honeymooners, then great. It's a total compliment. The Honeymooners was one of the greatest shows ever written. In another interview with METV Legends, he then goes on to say that the Flintstones stand apart because of the puns. (laughs) The Honeymooners don't have all the gags that we had in there. He said, uh, did he cite these examples? I think or he was did, this yeah. Citing such sterling examples as a stoneway piano and the polar rock camera. <laughs> just imagine. Oh, that one's not good. Polar rock camera. I'm not giving him that I mean, one. Polar just rock. The, the, the mid-century white male arrogance of being like, yeah, they don't have the caliber of our puns. Like using stone and rock. Whenever words already sounded like stone and rock, and sometimes 
when they didn't. <laughs> like, uh, God grant me the confidence. Um, <laughs> but despite this, Barbera even copped to hiring a former Honeymooners writer. <laughs> However, he said, we paid him $3,000 and he was terrible. And the reason being is he just wrote words. A writer's function? Anyway, uh, he said it was all dialogue. He had no visual gags, no nothing. Yak, 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 yak. The Honeymooners had a lot of dialogue, but it was their expressions and Art Carney's attitude that made it work. When you're doing an animation, you better go beyond that. You can't just have people making faces at each other. You have to move them. All right. Well, fine. Art Carney's uh, really funny. Yeah. The other difference is that Jackie Gleason's Ralph Cramden character regularly threatened to beat his wife, Alice, so much that it became his famous... One of these days, Alice, boom, straight to the moon, catchphrase. They did gender swap that in a uh, an example of notable early gender parody in media because uh, Wilma regularly goes uh, upside uh, Fred's head with um, a frying pan. So Jackie Gleason, however, was less than amused by the entire thing and thought that they were obviously ripping him off. Uh, years later, in a 1986 Playboy interview, he admitted that he had considered taking legal action against the Flintstones, but then his lawyers told him, do you want to be known as the guy who yanked Fred Flintstone off the air? The guy who took away a show so many kids love and so many parents love too? So he declined. I don't know. I mean, Lars Ulrich sued Metallica fans. Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> People will do many awful things for money. The Flintstones premiered on September 30th, 1960, and as with most shows at the time, it was seen in black and white. It wasn't until the third season in 1962 that ABC began broadcasting it in color, becoming one of the first shows to actually get broadcast in color. And <laughs> the show, in keeping with the grand tradition of almost every beloved property we talk about on this show, it was more or less panned when it first came out. Variety called it a pen and ink disaster in the vast wasteland of the 1960-1961 TV season, which many critics considered the worst in TV's short history up to that point. I didn't know this. What was so bad about this? Well, there's a famous story about there was a federal communications chief at the time, a guy by the name of Newton M. Minow, and he gave this very famous, he's still alive, actually, he's like almost 100, and he gave this very famous speech in, I think it was after this TV season, where he referred to television as, quote, a vast wasteland, and it's like this speech has its own Wikipedia entry. It's a very famous speech about television and the public interest, and <laughs> he just slags off TV and the people who created Gilligan's Island, Sherwood Shorts, <laughs> named the ship the Minnow, not because of fish reference, which I always thought. It was a dig at this guy, Newton M. Minnow, uh, hmm. as a, sure. a way to tweak this guy who hates TV and hated this producer's TV shows that he made before. So anyway, I just think that's really funny. And he's still alive, which is crazy. Um, what was big in that schedule let me look really quickly and see i mean yeah looking at a lot of these shows now they i i've never really even heard of most of these so i guess it was still kind of in the the hangover of uh what the western era too because half of these yeah wa wagon train the gunslinger the rifleman outlaws bat masterson i mean yeah, this is, it's a stupid analogy but it's almost like what happened with rock and roll you had in the mid to late 50s the pioneers that were making shows that we now consider really groundbreaking like lucy and the danny thomas stuff and 
um, your show of shows with Sid Caesar and all the people who did stuff first, uh, Steve Allen. And then they went off the air and people did different things. Then you just kind of had this era of kind of imitators, yeah. and pale imitations that went after that until um, you started getting a better quality of new weird shows in the mid 60s. Hmm. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah. So the Flintstones seldom got any love from the critics really through to the late 80s. Critics would just point out the recycled plot lines and the kind of hacky animation. And animation historian Michael Barrier called the Flintstones, quote, a dumb sitcom and stated that I can readily understand why someone who is a small child enjoyed, say, the Flintstones might regard that show fondly today. I have a lot more trouble understanding why anyone would try to defend anything about it on artistic grounds, which is rude. <laughs> but maybe these early critics hated the show because it premiered without a crucial piece of its charm the catchy theme song you know Flintstones meet the Flintstones yeah a theme we all know and love wouldn't arrive until the third season in 1962 when it started broadcasting in color wow. before that the show opened with an instrumental piece of music called Rise and Shine it, I re went and re-listened to it I don't remember it the more famous theme has a pretty impressive pedigree the melody was derived from the second movement of Beethoven's Piano Sonata Number no. 17, also known as The Tempest. Have you heard this? The Tempest? Or just this part of it. Here, I'm going to punch it in. That's really funny. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. 
and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. This all brings us to a much larger topic, yabba dabba do. What is it and what can it do for you? Yes, it's Fred Flintstone's catchphrase, an exclamation of joy that I'd always assumed was chosen because it sounded vaguely like caveman speak. But apparently it was an ad lib from the voice of Fred, Alan Reed, who reportedly did it on the fly during a recording session in the place of a more plain Yahoo. His mother used to say the old Brill Cream hair slogan familiar to listeners of a certain age, a little dabble do ya. You know, mm. my elementary school teacher used to say that when referring to Elmer's glue yep. during arts and crafts time. But Alan Reed was inspired by his mother and he just went with it during taping. And uh, I guess it stuck. And this is depressing aside. Fred Flintstone's just 41 years old, which is <sighs> older than most cavemen live to be. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also sad. Uh, and his design is based very much on the physical appearance of his voice actor, Alan Reed. Google him if you want. It's pretty uncanny. It's just like, oh, that. Like, yeah. You'll see his face and be like, oh, that's Fred Flintstone come to life. Uh, that guy was later the voice of the original King Keebler elf, uh, JJ. Oh, wow. I didn't know they had a, they were a monarchy, but. Um, <laughs> and I guess Yabba Dabba Doo inspired a fruit drink from the 70s. As in Yabba Dabba Doo, like Mountain Dew. Just reminds me of the C-Lab, the Bebop Cola thing. Um, Reed Wait, it was, was called Yabba Dabba Doo? That was Doo, the name yeah. of the drink? Yeah. Huh. Um, yeah, they, uh, Reed was not a good singer, which they play for laughs as Fred Flintstone. And his um, singing voice was overdubbed by a guy named Henry Corden, who eventually took over the role of Fred when Alan Reed died. And speaking of voice actors... Yes, this brings yes. us to the voice of Fred's best friend, Barney Rubble, the great voice actor, Mel Blanc. And we mentioned him in our Roger Rabbit episode. I mean, is there really any question, greatest voice over artist of all time? Like, he has to be. He's the man of a thousand voices. He voiced Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Tweety Bird, Sylvester the Cat, just to name but a handful. I, I'm sure there are many other huge ones that I'm forgetting. We told this story during the Roger Rabbit episode, but it's worth resharing. It's January 1961, less than a year into the Flintstones run. Mel Blanc was driving along that same dangerous bend that Jan and Dean sang about on Dead Man's Curve. And it almost claimed another victim because Mel got into a head-on crash with an 18-year-old student while driving his Aston Martin sports car, James Bond's car. The kid was fine, but Mel suffered a triple skull fracture along with fractures to both legs and his pelvis. He was in a coma, and his wife and son spent two weeks by his bedside trying to revive him, but got no response. It was really looking bad. Then, as a last-ditch effort, a neurologist went over to Mel's bed and asked, Bugs Bunny, how are you doing today? There was silence for a moment, and then this 
very quiet but very recognizable voice says, Meh, what's up, Doc? You know, the voice. And then the doctor asked if Tweety was there, too. And then you get the, you know, I thought I saw a putty cat, was the reply. And I guess Mel in later years was asked about the unorthodox way that he emerged from his coma. And he said, it seems like Bugs Bunny was trying to save his life. So Bugs pulled him out of his coma. But he was at the hospital for 70 days, resulting in a vocal stand-in for the Flintstones on a few episodes. But within a few weeks, he was back recording voiceovers as Barney Rubble from his hospital bed flat on his back in a body cast. Good God. Yeah, they assembled an ad hoc recording studio in the hospital room, and his Betty and Wilma castmates even came to his bedside and ran lines with him while producers talked to him through a built-in speaker. And Mel Blank later wrote in his memoir, which is hilarious, called That's Not All, Folks, Tangles of wires were scattered all over the floor, and chairs and microphones were arranged around my hospital bed. Every couple of hours, Joe Barbera would ask if I was too tired to carry on, but I insisted on completing the show. And they recorded this way for nine months, knocking out 40 episodes. And he goes on the right. Thankfully, by September, my doctors allowed me to sit up a bit, elevated by way of a pulley cable system to a semi-sitting position. It was no more than a few inches difference, but as I laughingly told my colleagues, how nice it is to be able to look at your faces instead of at the damned ceiling. Incredible. I mean, talk about dedication to your craft. Yeah. That's just, that's insane. Speaking of voice talent, I've dedicated, speaking of dedicated voice talent, Wilma was voiced by actress Jean Vanderpile from the show's beginning until the day she died in 1999. Uh, Wilma, um, you didn't mess with Wilma. You, no, you didn't. She would go upside uh, Fred's head with the old skillet. For all their bickering, Jean thought that deep down, theirs was a relationship based on love. As she inimitably told the LA Times in 1989, I loved the bum. Sure, Fred was a Yahoo and I got mad at him all the time, but we really loved each other. Our romance was one of the things that made us so popular. We were real. Um, she really also, blending the like speaking as the yeah, character yeah are we, are we life? sure yeah. she was all there when, the, when she did this um, and then she said uh, I know I'm going to get killed for saying this but Wilma had a great quote housewife whine to her voice she commanded enough authority to run the house but kept an equal amount of warmth Wilma is a communicator and a lot of women relate to that at least I know I do I think there's a lot of me in Wilma and even though she's just a cartoon I think my voice is one of the things that made her so human. Pyle was the longest surviving member of the show's original cast, which considering that this was the era when all of these people chain smoked like chimneys and drank whiskey with breakfast is quite an achievement. Mm. Um, speaking of Fred and Wilma's marital life, they actually shared a bed on this show, becoming one of the first TV couples to do so. The very first was a show called Mary Kay and Johnny, which uh, starred a couple who were married in real life. And it also was the first on TV to depict a pregnant woman. It was early. It was incredibly early. I think it was like 1948 or something. I don't even think you could show a pregnant woman in public back then. <laughs> yeah, if you go back to all of those early black and white sitcoms like I Love Lucy, Dick Van Dyke Show, uh, all the couples are in twin beds next to each other. I'm sure there's a bedrock joke in here, a la Kesha, about the Flintstones sharing a bed, but <laughs> I can't find it. So tweet at us at... <laughs> 
Well, while we're on the subject, I thought it would be fun to run down a quick list of prudish TV firsts. And many of these are courtesy of the fine folks at Cracked. In 1953, Isle of Lucy became the first show to have a birth as part of the plot, despite the fact that she couldn't say the word pregnant. She had to say expecting. Almost 72% of homes with television sets were tuned in to watch, which was hilariously substantially more than President Dwight D. Eisenhower's inauguration the next day. Didn't they also have to, like, she was, was she one of the first to wear pants on TV? You know, I don't know. That wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. It was Lucille Ball was the first, but Mary Tyler Moore's were the ones that really the caused, pants. yeah, really caused yeah. a stir. In 1956, the Danny Thomas show, Make Room for Daddy, became the first show to kill off a main character to deal with an actor deciding to leave the series. It was supposed to be Danny Thomas's wife, but she wasn't happy with her character changes because the producers were rebranding the show, and divorce was too shocking at the time, so they just opted to kill her because <laughs> death is fine. <laughs> Uh, I love that. Uh, in 1957, Leave It to Beaver became the first show to show it part of a toilet on TV. Uh, the episode was about the kids buying a pet alligator and keeping it in the toilet. Is that the origin of the alligator in the sewer urban legend? Maybe. I don't know. That's a good point. Interesting. The network freaked out and forbade showing it, and eventually they compromised by shooting it from up high and only showing the tank. <laughs> I just want to add that toilets on television have a long, fraught history. Um, In 1960, one of the early Tonight Show hosts, Jack Parr, told a joke about, he just said the words, water, the water closet, and censors cut the joke out. And, like, that's what we're dealing with. Like, he couldn't say the phrase or word or whatever it is, water closet. And he was so outraged that the next day when he came on the show, it was a very famous story at the time. He came out just absolutely in a fury. He started to cry on air because he was just so angry. And then he walked off the stage and walked off in the middle of taping and disappeared for, I think, several weeks. And like no one knew it would be like if it, it would be like if Colbert or Jimmy Fallon just suddenly like walked off the air. Had a breakdown. Yeah, on air, and then just just flew to like there were rumors that he was in like Thailand or something, like it, really crazy. So yeah, you couldn't even say water closet on TV in 1960. And then I think the first show, at least historic, like the legend that the first show to actually feature the sound of a toilet being flushed was all in the family in 1971. Good lord, this country. Yeah. Um, the first interracial kiss is frequently cited as uh, this episode of Star Trek uh, between Kirk and Uhura, but it was actually a few years prior to that, 1962, during a televised play called You in Your Small Corner. In 1964, the soap opera Another World became the first show to address abortion a decade before it was a plot line on the uh, All in the Family spinoff Maud. And Cher is widely credited as breaking the belly button barrier on TV during the Sonny and Cher show in 1971. For years before that, I think we've talked about this before on the show, Network Brass forbade Barbara Eden from exposing her navel on I Dream of Jeannie, and also Don Wells and Tina Louise on Gilligan's Island were required to wear shorts that covered them up as well. So that's hilarious. The <laughs> first openly gay character was played by veteran character actor Vincent Chiavelli. On the 1972 show, The Corner Bar, the character's name was Peter Panama, and he's 
pretty offensive to modern sensibilities, but still historic first. The first openly gay couple were on a 1975 episode of the show Hot L Baltimore. The episode opened with a mature warning, which was rare at the time. The first same-sex kiss was on an episode of L.A. Law in 1991, a year that also featured the first same-sex marriage on the show Rock. Shaft actor Richard Roundtree uh, was featured in a recurring guest role as the main character's uncle, who's revealed to have a male partner. A 1999 episode of Chicago Hope featured a scripted curse uncensored for the first time in network television history. Mark Harmon uttered the phrase, happens. <laughs> Star Trek was the first show to say hell in 1967 in the context of Captain Kirk saying, let's get the hell out of here. Apparently something Gene Roddenberry had to fight for. Uh, but Charles Rocket did drop the old F-bomb on Saturday Night Live in 1981, uh, which resulted in him being summarily dismissed. Um, but I guess, yeah, Chicago Hope probably gets the credit for that because it was scripted, not live. And in 2007, Candace Kane became one of the first transgender actresses to receive a lead role as a transgender character on the primetime show Dirty Sexy Money. And a decade later, in 2017, non-binary actor Asia Kate Dillon portrayed the first lead non-binary character, Taylor Mason, on Billions. And speaking of TV births, we got to talk about Baby Pebbles. Truly one of the cutest cartoon characters of all time. Come on, the way her hair's done up with that little bow, it's adorable. <laughs> and it was at the start of the show's third season in 1962 that producers decided that Fred and Wilma should have a child. And Joseph Barbera told METV Legends that the plan was for the child to be a boy until the Ideal Toy Company, which is the company that created the Rubik's Cube and a bunch of other big-name toys, changed his mind because, uh, I guess, girl dolls sell a lot better than boy dolls, at least at the time. And Barbera said he got a call from the guy in charge of the Flintstones merchandising. Uh, he said, hey, I hear you're going to have a baby on the show. I said, yeah, this is Barbera talking. He said, is it a boy or a girl? And Barbera said, what else? A boy. A chip off the old rock. The merchandise guy says, oh, that's too bad. I have these ideal toy people. If it was a girl, we could have made a hell of a deal. And Barbera <laughs> said, oh, it's a girl. So they sold three million Pebbles dolls within the first couple months, which is insane. Um, this impending Flintstones birth was worldwide news which is just hard to imagine. Again, this is before JFK was killed. This was a simpler time. <laughs> TV networks around the world held contests for viewers to pick the name, sex, and even the weight. And the night that Wilma told Fred she was pregnant, that's January 25th, 1963, there was a voiceover at the end of the show that said, that's right, folks, the Flintstones are going to have a baby, and you can win a trip around the world. All you had to do was pick the correct birth weight, and the winner, a Florida butcher, received a round trip plus $2,000 in spending cash, which is like $20,000 today. And Hanna-Barbera appeared live at the end of the show immediately after Pebbles' birth to announce this winner. Uh, Pebbles was born on February 22nd, 10,000 BC at 8.20 p.m., by the way. <laughs> she weighed 6 pounds, 12 ounces. And her name comes from Wilbur's maiden name of Pebble which was mysteriously changed to Shag Hoople later in the show for, with, with no explanation. It's like the older brother Chuck from Happy Days. Like, Richie Cunningham had an older brother for the first couple seasons, and then the older brother, they just wrote him out and never talked about him again. It's like that. Just things on shows like this just change. She went back to her home questions. planet. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, 
At the time of Pebble's birth, Fred said that she was, quote, a pebble off the old Flintstone. So that's how she got her name. Uh, yes, but despite their abundance of progeny, things were not all perfect in the Flintstone household. Or at least that's what one famous urban legend would have you believe. There are some people who think that Fred had an affair with Barney's wife, Betty. Um, Fred and Wilmer always seemed bickering throughout the show, but Fred and Betty were always depicted as conspicuously friendly. In fact, flirty, almost. It would make sense that Fred would be attracted to Betty as she was the opposite of Wilma. And uh, meanwhile, the same can be said of Betty being attracted to Fred, who is a strong and forceful man, as opposed to the mild-mannered Barney. This is, of course, all just a theory, but there is hard evidence on the show that uh, Fred may be a gambling addict. <laughs> Something frequently played for laughs. Uh, any, anytime gambling is even mentioned, he just starts stuttering. Throughout the show, he can be seen playing slot machines, poker, lying about it to Wilma. There's an episode where he loses his entire paycheck on a bet and then tells Wilma they've been robbed. Uh, there's a short video on YouTube by High Roller Radio TV that goes into detail about Fred's gambling problem in each season. Um, and, you know, Fred uh, is not limited in his vices. He, like, drink every now and again, bend an elbow or two, as they say, take a snoot fool. I don't know, what other uh, what other 50s gems can I run through here? Um, there's also an episode, <laughs> I guess he had a, a... We didn't talk about the loyal order of the water buffaloes. That's like one of the only other things I remember from this show, is oh, their yeah. big hats they would wear. Anyway, there's an episode where his bowling club, the loyal order of the water buffaloes, uh, hires some showgirl dancers as entertainment for a party. Anyway, in keeping with all of that, there are some surprisingly dirty jokes buried in the Flintstones. In one episode... Fred and Barney go to a costume maker, and Fred asks Barney, what kind of costume are you going to get? Barney, who is short, replies that he's looking for something that will make me look tall. And Fred cracks, how about another head? Barney responds, another one? What do I need three of them for? Get it? Because he's got the one, and then the, and then the other one, and then, so what am I in a third one? Uh, another time, Fred and Barney are watching sports on TV at the latter's house, and they lose reception. Fred inquires if everything is in working order, including asking Barney, how's your antenna? Barney replies with a huge smile, fine, friend, how's yours? <laughs> I made that sound sexual, and, I mean, between them, because I was also just reading a bunch of shit about how people think they're gay. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, speaking of vices... Yeah, that's not the only less-than-kid-friendly stuff they had on the show. The Flintstones used to hawk cigarettes with a baked-in ad at the end of the show. <laughs> For the first two seasons, the show was sponsored by Winston Cigarettes, so the characters would appear in animated commercials for them at the end of the episode. This was the era when the shows pitched their sponsors' products in what were called integrated commercials, where like the stars of the show would come out and do a whole skit involving the product and there's one black and white spot where barney and fred are trying to get out of yard work so barney says let's take a winston break and he and fred go around back and light up and then wilma and betty catch them and throw yard equipment at them to which fred says his famous tagline winston tastes good like a cigarette should obviously this was all very normal at the time but today it's just really surreal to see this kid-friendly cartoon shilling cigarettes uh it wasn't until 1966 around the time that the flintstones ended that cautionary labels were included on cigarette packs and then four years later in 1970 when cigarette ads were banned from tv and radio altogether 
but it gets darker. In addition to sneaking adult jokes and themes into episodes, the Flintstones also had some plot lines that were about as serious as a heart attack. Case in point, the episode that aired not long after Pebbles was born, which sends the Rubbles into an emotional tailspin because they are unable to conceive children. They intrude on their neighbors, the Flintstones, more often than usual after Pebbles' birth, much to the annoyance of Fred, who finally throws them out. And Wilma goes over to the Rubbles and apologizes and realizes that they dote on Pebbles because they desperately want a child of their own. Devastating all around. Uh, you see Betty Rubble in tears at one point. It's awful. They wish upon a star and wake up the next day and discover a baby in a basket on their doorstep who they name Bam Bam. And that would have been a sweet ending, but we're not done with you. The Rubbles nearly lose Bam Bam in a custody battle while trying to adopt him officially. Instead of the Rubbles instantly getting Bam Bam in a fairytale ending with a star wish, they suffer through the court system and nearly lose their child. This is a kid's animation show. And when it looks like they might not be able to adopt Bam Bam after all, Barney dramatically declares that his life is not worth living and heads to the nearest bridge, ties a rope to a rock, and threatens to dive in and drown himself. Thankfully, it all works out in the end, but Jesus Christ. Uh, on the historical factoid front, it marked the first time an animated television series involved the issue of infertility in an episode. Or that's got to be a short it, list. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it must be. Uh, and that's not the only time they tackled suicide on the Flintstones. There's one episode from 1961 that opens with Fred and Barney driving over the new George Washington toll bridge. Hmm. Medium funny. When they encounter a man standing on the edge of the bridge also with a boulder tied around his neck. Turns out it's all an elaborate con man scheme, but still dark. Yeah. Um, but you know, move on, moving into happier climbs, uh, the cavalcade of guest stars who appeared on the Flintstones over the years. There was Anne Margaret, who's fresh off. Bye bye birdie singing as her stone age alter ego and Marg rock. Hmm. Okay. I'm just going to tap the mic after every one of these. Tony Curtis ah. appears as movie star Stony Curtis. Yeah. Uh, they had celebrities who didn't do their own voices, but appeared as thinly disguised parodies. Ed Sullivan is Ed Sully Stone. Oh, come on. They're not even trying. Alfred Hitchcock is Alvin Brickrock. I'll give that one to him. That's better. Cary Grant as Gary Granite. Yeah. Rock Hudson is Rock Quarry. That one doesn't even... Mm. <laughs> Rock Pile, I think, was another one. Uh, and um, TV lawyer Perry Mason was played as Perry Masonry or Masonite. Which were the, which of the two was it, Runtog? I think he was on twice. I th or that character, rather, was on twice. <laughs> they changed it from... Good Lord. Um, oh, wait, we got a better one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there were also references to Jackie Kennerock. Come on. That, that, yeah, that one does not count. <laughs> For ja that does not count as a Jackie Kennedy reference. No. Clark Gravel. Clark Label, that's fine. Uh, okay. Sandy Stonax. Uh, plans pitcher Sandy Koufax. I'll take that. I mean, yeah, these are the people who gave us Yogi Bear for Yogi Berra. Uh, the show embraced crossovers as well with Samantha Stevens, played by Elizabeth Montgomery of Bewitched, another ABC sitcom, moving into the neighborhood in one episode, and the aforementioned Yogi Bear making a cameo in another. 
We cannot talk about the Flintstones crossovers, however, without mentioning The Jetsons, a show that was quite obviously inspired directly by the success of The Flintstones. Unlike The Honeymooners and The Flintstones, Jetsons was pitched as an actual rip. Hanna-Barbera wanted to strike while the iron was hot and opted to just quite simply invert the premise of The Flintstones because it was easier than coming up with a new idea. It's The Flintstones in space. It's Die Hard <laughs> on a plane. <laughs> um, it's weird because I, you, you and I both seem to have thought this was like a bigger thing than it was. It only aired for one season, 24 episodes. Uh, it got rebooted in 1985 and 1987, but, uh, Jetson super fans, which is apparently a cohort of human beings in the, this year of our Lord, 2022, <laughs> uh, do not consider that part of the canon. A live action film and television series have both been in the works for quite a few years, but both of those appear to be trapped in development hell. In 1987, there was also the truly brilliant crossover bit of uh, synergy with the made-for-TV mashup The Jetsons Meet the Flintstones, in which George Jetson's time travel schemes go wrong and the family gets sent back to 10,000 BC. That's the one you're familiar with, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's the one that I remember actually seeing. I mean, because there are a truly insane number of made-for-TV movies and spinoffs and things. Like, that's the only one that I have direct personal experience with. Well, let's run them down. There was the short-lived Pebbles and Bam Bam show from 1971 to 1972, uh, which aged them up to high schoolers and uh, spoofed youth culture like hippies and biker gangs. Uh, the voice of Pebbles was Sally Struthers who had to quit when she got cast as Gloria on All in the Family. Then there was the Flintstones Comedy Hour in 1972 and 73, which was essentially an animated sketch comedy show in the style of the Sunday and Cher Comedy Hour. Shorts and songs and... I, I don't know. It's Just weird. Socket, rock it to me. <laughs> <laughs> I could have written for this show. Uh, there was the rival series, The New Adventures of Fred and Barney, that aired in 79 and found the guys having adventures with werewolves and witches for some reason. Uh, everything's improved with werewolves. You take a mm. Jetsons meet the Wolfman, that would have ruled. Then in 1980, there was the Flintstone Comedy Show, which was an anthology comedy show. Six years later, in 86, you got the Flintstones Kids, which... Contrary to you thinking it's the actual kids from the original show, simply de-ages Fred, Barney, Wilma, and Betty as children, a la Muppet Babies. Uh, there were a dozen TV specials aired, uh, including the Flintstones Kids Just Say No special, a um, couple of holiday specials, an episode where they meet Frankenstone. <laughs> this thing on. And another called Fred's Final Fling, in which he is mistakenly informed that he has 24 hours to live and wants to make the most of the rest of his life. So those are all weird, but no Flintstones-related release is as weird as the 2015 direct-to-video DVD, The Flintstones and WWE Stone Age Smackdown. I feel you got. I feel you got to take this one. This is this is so your wheelhouse. <laughs> um, in 2015. There was an attempt to bridge the historically at odds <laughs> fan bases of professional wrestling and the Flintstones. Uh, this historic reaching out to China, if you will, um, <laughs> this rapprochement. Uh, I don't know who the hell did this thing. 
I I don't know. I don't know. It follows Fred and Barney as they try and uh, uh, build a wrestling organization. It's called the Flintstones and WWE Stone Age Smackdown. This was not a fever dream that came out in the heyday of either of these organizations. This I can't believe this came out in 2015. But it also features... Uh, it ends with a mass, ma- massive uh, wrestling match, the Royal Rumble, the Rockle, Rock Bull, the Royal Rum Brock. No? Anything there? Yes, and? I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm know, pitching. Yes I'm, I'm developing. I'm oh. pitching. Um, real life wrestlers like The Undertaker, Daniel Bryan, and John Cena. This is the first new Flintstones production in over 14 years, and perhaps tellingly, the first without the original creators. Uh, mm. Oh, well, they were dead. That's why. Did they lose the rights? I don't know if they lost their rights, or just whoever was now in charge had some interesting ideas. <laughs> yeah. That is uh, deeply absurd. Well, shockingly, it got good reviews. <laughs> yeah, yes, it did. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian.
Well, speaking of blatant cash grabs, let's talk about the merch. The Flintstones have all sorts of product tie-ins over the years, and aside from toys, the most famous are probably Pebbles cereal and the Flintstones chewable vitamins. The Pebbles cereal is actually somewhat historic. It started off with post-cereal brands trying to compete with Rice Krispies, and the best they could come up with was Sugar Rice Crinkles. Unsurprisingly, with that name, Sugar Rice Crinkles, it was failing. And in an attempt to boost the sales for children, they licensed the Flintstones and rebranded the cereal as Fruity and Chocolate Pebbles. Now, characters have been used in advertising, but there'd never been a branded cereal created around a media character. And there were big fears that the Flintstones' popularity was going to fade and this was all going to be a massive mistake. But Fruity and Chocolate Pebbles were both released in 1969 and they have been bestsellers for Post ever since. But on the flip side, the cereal got them sued by Hulk Hogan. Uh, speaking of the WWE, in May of 2010, there was a Cocoa Pebbles commercial where Barney and Fred face off with a wrestler named Hulk Boulder. Hmm. And it ends with Hulk getting his ass handed to him by Barney's young son, Bam Bam, who, you remember, is the strongest little boy in the world. And so Hulk Boulder loses the match. Hulk Hogan sued the Post, saying that they stole his image to promote Pebbles and that his reputation had been damaged by the commercials, since, you know, he lost to a toddler. I assumed <laughs> that this all would have fallen into parody protection, but Hulk claimed that he actually used to use the name Hulk Boulder early in his career until he changed it to Hulk Hogan to make it sound more Irish. <laughs> the suit was settled in September 2010. It's like I don't when know they, why that would make you a better it's like, wrestler. But. It's like when they anglicized your name coming over from Ellis Island. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like the immigration guy was like, Hulk Boulder, that'll never play in the States. You're Hulk Hogan now. And a light bulb went off. <laughs> Amazing. The suit was settled in September of 2010 with a condition that the commercial was not rebroadcast. And then there are the Flintstones vitamins, which are actually another rebrand. They were originally a chewable vitamin brand called Chalks, which is maybe one of the least appealing names I've ever heard for something you eat. Uh, basically, they were exactly the same as the Flintstones vitamins, but without the character shapes, which came in 1968. They had all the principles in there, including Dino the dog-like pet dinosaur. All the principles except Betty. And this went on for 20 years, this Betty erasure, <laughs> uh, until a grassroots campaign forced Bayer Pharmaceutical to jump into action, and Betty replaced Fred's car as one of the vitamin shapes. For two decades, they opted for Fred's car and not Betty Rubble. I find that that that's offensive to me. I'd always heard in like Doctor John's bathroom reader and and whatnot um, that uh, it was because her waist was too small and she kept breaking in half. So you just got all these headless Bettys. Good band name. <laughs> I was gonna say, is that the sequel to Black Betty? <laughs> oh, headless Betty, bam a lamb. Wow. So the Flintstone vitamins have become hugely successful, helping an untold number of kids grow big and strong. I was one of them. But apparently these beloved vitamins aren't as healthy as were once believed. This is according to an article courtesy of Spoon University, which is not a college, it's a website, who did a deep study into the ingredients. The vitamins contain a sweetening agent called sorbitol, which is an ingredient usually found in laxatives meaning children are at risk of nausea, stomach cramps, and severe diarrhea if they take too many of these Flintstone vitamins. The vitamins also have a high percentage of artificial colors and flavors in them and contain fructose, another sugar linked to obesity and diabetes. Huh. 
All right. Flintstones movie. Take take me home. Honey, sugar, we're going home. <laughs> going down swinging. What else you got? Now, so far we've discussed the Flintstones on TV and on shelves. Now we need to talk about the Flintstones on the big screen. I completely missed this, but after the Flintstones were canceled and went off the air in 1966, they released a full-length theatrical film as the series finale called The Man Called Flintstone which was their version of the many James Bond spy spoofs that were flooding the market at the time. It's a rip on our man Flint, you know, the man called Flintstone. We mentioned our man Flint in the Austin Powers episode. Yeah. Uh, in Like Flint, it's Austin's favorite movie, you'll recall. <laughs> this movie, The Man Called Flintstone, was not the big budget feature that this beloved franchise deserved. It would take almost 30 years for that to happen. The 1994 live-action adaptation was held up in development hell for nearly a decade before it got the green light to go into production. And during that time, it went through two producers, two directors, 14 screenwriters, and 18 TV gag writers. Yeah, this... You didn't mention... You you elided. You glossed over. You eschewed mentioning that it was Joel f***ing Silver. I see a friend or enemy of the pod. Oh, too early to tell. Yeah. <laughs> He's no Jeffrey Katzenberg. No. Um, Joel Silver originally optioned this. Mitch Markowitz, who wrote a bunch of TV as well as Good Morning Vietnam, turned in a truly insane draft of this script. In his own words, Fred and Barney leave their town during a terrible depression and go across the country, or whatever the damn prehistoric thing is, looking for jobs. They wind up in trailer parks trying to keep their families together. They exhibit moments of heroism and poignancy. Richard Donner <laughs> of the Goonies and attached and to Radio Flyer. Yes, the very same. And Superman. Deemed this bizarre Grapes of Wrath, Badlands, Terrence Malick Fantasia, a bridge too damn far, and put the kibosh on it. As you mentioned, 14 screenwriters uh, were born, at least 14. Well, who knows? 35 is the other number I read attached to this. Um, writers Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel, and yes, those are their trade names, took home what Entertainment Weekly reported as a hundred grand for two days work. They did a league of their own. Well, maybe that's why they pulled down a hundred grand for yeah, two maybe. days of Flintstones rewrites. Rick Moranis said this thing had about 18 writers, but he was off by half, at least the highest estimate that I found, 35 writers supposedly worked on this thing and it had to go to arbitration by the writers guild to straighten out all of these credits even steven spielberg was attached at one point and i guess he was the one who suggested john goodman as fred after working with him on the film always and prior to that they were looking at other actors including chevy chase jim belushi and bill murray all of whom were deemed too small and skinny and they needed someone of john goodman's girth and size to get that cartoonish effect and Danny DeVito was rumored to be the first choice to play Barney, but he turned it down because, you know, his gruff voice is just, you can't make Danny DeVito sound dopey. And, and <laughs> Barney's kind of dopey. Uh, but he was apparently the one who recommended Rick Moranis for Barney, which is truly the role he was born to play. This film was so well cast. Goodman as Fred. Well. Uh, well, <laughs> well. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Take it, yeah. Tell us more about what John Goodman felt about playing Fred Flintstone. Just arguably not a complimentary role, I should say. <laughs> John Goodman, bless his heart, with utter despair in his face, utter uh, uh, waiting for Godot's existential horror 
talking to GQ in 2019. This is on YouTube. He says, they kind of sandbagged me into taking the role of Fred Flintstone. Apparently on the day of the first table read for that Spielberg movie, Always, Spielberg announced to the room, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to say something before we start. I've found my Fred Flintstone, which Goodman said took the wind out of me, adding that it was not a role I was looking forward to doing. But he did love working with uh, Rick Moranis. And though he said it was very hot and very sweaty um, because they were filming in like Monument Valley and stuff, right? Like actually out in the desert. Uh, He said that it was, quote, fun. The thought of John Goodman being sad. It's like Robin Williams being sad. I don't don't like that at all. No. I don't know why I love this detail so much, but I guess glass was banned on the set because all the actors were barefoot because Mm -hmm. they were cave people. Yeah. This is also the last film appearance of Elizabeth Taylor, who played <laughs> Wilma's mother, Pearl Slag Hoople. She did the odd TV cameo, but spent the rest of her life focused on her philanthropy work before her death in 2011. Strange, very strange end to a legendary film career, but at least this wasn't a box office bomb. It earned $342 million on a budget of $46 million. It's really a clever movie. You know, you got Rosie O'Donnell's Betty, Elizabeth Perkins' as Wilma, and the B-52s handling the theme song under the name the BC-52s, which is adorable. So all in all, pretty cute. Barbera, never one to turn down an opportunity to talk, said in 1997 that although he was impressed by the film's visuals, he felt the story wasn't as good as I could have made it. Uh, it did pick up two Razzies, one for O'Donnell and one for the screenplay. Oh, that's a bummer. So overall, the Flintstones movie did all right for itself. The same cannot be said for the ill-fated sequel, 2000's Flintstones Viva Rock Vegas. Much like the first Flintstones movie, it took years to get this out of development. And by the time they were ready to go in the late 90s, many years after the original in 1994, John Goodman said he was too busy with other acting gigs and didn't want to do it. And from then on, it was a domino effect. All the original cast pulled out, and producers handled this unfortunate situation by making Viva Rock Vegas a prequel and recasting the franchise with a bunch of younger actors. And unfortunately, most of these younger actors were C-listers. A guy named Mark Addy took over the role of Fred Flintstone. Stephen Baldwin took on Barney. Kristen Johnson from Third Rock from the Sun played Wilma. And Jane Krakowski, pre-30 Rock, played Betty. A guy named Mark Addy, you are referring to the full Monty star, BAFTA nominated. He's English? uh, Robert Baratheon from Game of Thrones. That Mark Addy. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Continue. Guess so. (laughs) The Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas became a massive bomb and put it into basically any more Flintstone films being made in the near future. But on the upside... It's apparently Kristen Stewart's film debut. Hmm. Um, actually, wait a minute. As Pebbles? That's what I'm just trying to figure out. Ring Toss Girl. Hmm. I don't. I guess it's like a like truly a walk on part. There was talk of doing another feature length animated Flintstones movie back in 2014 with Will Ferrell and Adam McKay executive producing, but I think that's probably died a death because I don't think they're working together anymore, and it's been many years since. So, who knows? Yeah, I when I looked that up, the last thing I found was 2014, and like I think Deadline 
And until very recently, there was not a new Flintstones-related show on television for close to 20 years um, since the TV movie On the Rocks. Getting really tired of these rock puns, Jordan. I don't know how much longer I can keep doing this. Uh, In 2001, Family Guy creator Seth MacFarlane, uh, who got his start, I think, on Johnny Bravo on Cartoon Network, uh, spent years trying to get a reboot together, even wrote a pilot for Fox, which they rejected, which seems absurd. Considering the stuff they did green light from Seth MacFarlane, <laughs> from, you know, the Cleveland show and American Dad and whatever that Orville show is. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the Orville. Anyway, that was tentatively announced in 2011, but in a more recent Reddit AMA, he announced that he was giving up on it. Honestly, I couldn't figure out a way to find enough differentiation between a modern-day Fred Flintstone and Peter Griffin, he said. Ha! <laughs> yeah. Fair. Uh, so that's a bummer. But last year, they premiered Yabba Dabba Dinosaurs, which is a kid's show, and it is the first full-length Flintstones-related TV show in 19 years, and the first since creators William Hanna and Joseph Barbera died. That was a kid's show, but in 2019, it was announced that Elizabeth Banks is executive producing and starring in a new animated Flintstones series for adults called Bedrock. It is set 20 years after the original show, just as the Stone Age is giving way to the more enlightened Bronze Age. Fred Flintstone is on the brink of retirement. Pebbles, voiced by Elizabeth Banks, is now in her 20s and starting a career. Uh, yeah, is this the fifth episode in which we've talked about like a decades-old property being rebooted for a younger generation? Yeah, we got Legends of the Hidden Temple, all that, League of Their Own. Yeah, I don't, I'm... I'm Frankly, I'm tired of it. I want them to, uh, I want a gritty Flintstones reboot. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Flintstone where people's lives are in danger on a regular Yeah. Basis. Just like, watch yeah. That. Show me, uh, Mr. Slate getting gutted by a velociraptor. <laughs> you know, that's now we're, now we're cooking with gas. Bedrock. <laughs> they do the slow, lower register piano note rendition of the theme song. Fades in slowly. Oh my God. Bedrock. From the producers of The Wire comes. (laughs) They used to call me Fred. (laughs) These days they just call me Flint. Bam! December 2023. Directed by David Fincher. We pitched so many good (laughs) ideas on this show. Which, by the way, all verbal contract. If any of these gets made, I'm suing the absolute (laughs) out of Joel Silver. Uh, (laughs) Go ahead. Jordan, take us home, buddy. Yes. As we said at the top of the episode, the real legacy of the show lives on in stuff like Family Guy and especially The Simpsons, who shattered the record for the longest-running animated series many years ago. Still, The Simpsons frequently pay tribute to their prehistoric forebearers. During one early episode, Homer Simpson is confronted by the convenience store clerk, Apu, with the question, Excuse me, sir, you look familiar. Are you on television or something? To which Homer replies, Sorry, buddy, you got me confused with Fred Flintstone. And also one of the famous couch gags at the start of every episode features the Simpsons running into their living room only to find the Flintstones already sitting there. I just think this is cute. A sweet nod to the art that came before. Fine. You're a Simpsons guy. What do you think? Maybe I'll go back and watch some Flintstones. Maybe I'll shake myself out of my own bedrock of complacency. (laughs) (laughs) Of prescription pill induced complacency <laughs> yeah that's what i hope this show more than anything else i hope this show encourages people to to go back and check out these 
things that maybe they, these pieces of art that they may have forgotten about and discover that it will still bring you joy and it's better than you remember. I think Flintstones kind of take it for granted. It's been around for so long. Take it for granted. Ah, this has been too you know much. What? I'm leaving it. Yeah. This has been too much infraction. I'm Alex Flint High Flint Stone Gull. Owl Rock Flint Quarry. Ah, and I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. <laughs> Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.